Would you turn with me, please, to Second uh, Corinthians seven? Second Corinthians seven five. <clears throat> we have a number of C.S. Lewis uh, buffs here, and um, for those of you who have read the Narnian tales for your own enjoyment, or for those of, for that of your children, you'll remember the uh, second, uh, the third of the Narnian tales is called the Do- the Voyage of the Dawn Treader. It's uh, the story of three children, uh, Edmund and Lucy Pavinci, and their cousin Eustace Scrub. Uh, I've always loved that name, Eustace Scrub. Sounds like a new bathroom cleanser. Um, the children uh, book voyage on a, on a ship that sails to the end of the earth and beyond. Carolyn just finished reading it again and uh, reminded me of one of the... Uh, one of the events that occurred in, in the book. It's a story of the adventures and misadventures of these children as they sail to the east. And they come to Dragon Island, where uh, Eustace, who's a kind of a cranky little boy, obnoxious actually, who's uh, described in the book as a snob. His mother makes him read economics instead of uh, fairy tales. And uh, is wealthy, comes from a wealthy background. And he's very greedy, and he turns into a dragon. If you remember the story, he tries to rid himself of these ugly scales. And every time he tears the scales away from his body, there's another layer of scales exposed underneath, until finally Aslan, who is the picture of of the Lord Jesus, with his terrible and cruel claws, uh, scrapes away the, the scales, and then throws the little boy into a magic well. And when he emerges, he's a new boy. He's a new person. It's a great story of how the Lord redeems us from our ugliness. Now, that's the concern that Paul has in this passage in 2 Corinthians 7. Let's uh, read it together, beginning with verse 5. For when we came into Macedonia, this body of ours had no rest, but we were harassed at every turn, conflicts on the outside, fears within. This is the most human, perhaps, of all of Paul's writings. tells us things about Paul that we would not otherwise know. As Paul tells us uh, in in an earlier part of the book, he opens up his heart to people. There's a transparency about this, uh, about this man that perhaps is not evident in some of his other books. He's willing to let us see, see him as he really is. And uh, he says, when he came into Macedonia, he, he had no rest in his flesh, is the word that Paul uses, his body or his, his personality, his soul. But we were harassed at every turn. There were conflicts on the outside, and within there were fears. But God, who comforts the downcast or the humiliated, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort you have given him. He told us about your longing for me, your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me, so that my joy was, was greater than ever. Now, you may have forgotten uh, some of the background of this particular uh, chapter. Paul is picking up where he left off in chapter 3, verse 13. What had happened was this. There was a man living in Corinth who was having an affair with his his stepmother, we assume. We we don't know all the details. Paul gives us a very sketchy picture of this relationship. But we're told that he had some some sort of sexual relationship with his father's mother, or father's wife is the way it's put, his uh, stepmother probably. And the church did nothing about it. They let this sin go on, unjudged, no one lovingly confronted this brother. No one talked to him about his sin. 
Uh, as a matter of fact, it was, this was the church that was very proud of its behavior. Paul says, you ought to mourn. You ought to, you ought to feel uh, uh, sadness at this, uh, at this circumstance. You should do something about it. The book of 1 Corinthians was at least in part written for that purpose, to tell them that they needed to act in judgment against this brother. They didn't do anything. So Paul dispatched Timothy over to Corinth. Timothy came back embarrassed. They didn't want to hear Timothy. He was young. He was inexperienced. They sent him home humiliated. So Paul sent another letter, what he calls his painful letter, which we do not have in our collection of New Testament books. This, this letter was lost. But Paul says it caused him a great deal of pain to, to write it. As a matter of fact, later in this passage, he says, when I first wrote it, I regretted it. You ever write a letter and uh, drop it in the mailbox and then immediately wish you hadn't written it? You, know, you wish you had a telescopic arm so you could reach down in the box and get the thing back. Apparently that's what Paul did. He wrote this letter, and it was a very strong, not harsh perhaps, but a very hard letter, hard for him to write, hard on the Corinthians. Paul says he regretted it, though afterwards he did not regret it. Uh, he sent Titus over to see if there was any response to this uh, second letter and uh, waited anxiously for Titus to return and uh, he didn't come back to Ephesus, so Paul left the city of Ephesus, went up to Troas, waited for a while. He said, I had no peace up there. I had opportunities to, to preach and teach. I couldn't take advantage of them. Booked passage on a ship over to Macedonia. Got to Macedonia, met Titus, and that's when he breaks into this great expression of praise in chapter 2, verse 14. Thanks be unto God who always causes us to triumph in Christ Jesus. Titus brought back the report that, uh, that, the, that the people in Corinth were now willing to submit to Paul's leadership. Now, when Paul says, as he does in verse uh, 7, uh, that Titus told him about their longing for him, their deep sorrow, their ardent concern, he's not merely talking about a change of attitude toward Paul. He's rather referring to their change of attitude toward his apostolic authority. We need to recall that when the apostles wrote, they wrote with the authority of our, of our Lord Jesus. That's why I've never been particularly fond of red-letter Bibles, because they imply that Jesus' words have more authority than the words of the apostles. But we know from Jesus' teaching and from that of the apostles that when the apostles speak, they speak with the same strength and with the same authority. Uh, with which our Lord speaks. Paul, for example, in his letter to the church in Thessalonica, says, When you received my word, you received it, not as the word of men, but as it really is, the word of God that is at work among you. In other words, the writing of the apostles has the same authority uh, that, uh, of any, that Jesus' teachings have. See? We must submit to the apostles as well as to our, to our Lord. Now, this is what he's talking about. They acceded to his authority. They were willing to do something about this situation. And what they did is what Jesus commands us to do in Matthew 18. We went through that passage in some detail when, when we were studying 2 Corinthians 5. But our Lord tells us that if, if a brother sins, we're to go to our brother. We're not to condemn him or her. We're not to sit in judgment in a critical, harsh, carping manner. We're not to go uh, in self-righteousness. But we are to go in, in a loving manner, in a gentle manner, and talk to them about their sin. Jesus said, if they hear you, you've gained a brother back. It's a rescue operation. You, 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 go, you go get them for the sake of Christ. You reach out to them and bring them back. Jesus said, if they don't hear you, then you take two or three. 
not to gang up on the person, not just to compel them by sheer weight of numbers to, to respond, but rather to objectify the situation, to help them to see that this is more than a personal matter. It has to do with truth and that there are others that see that, that this individual is not acting according to truth. And then Jesus said, if they don't hear the two or three, tell it to the church. Have the church appeal to them. The whole church surrounds them with love and, and speaks truth to them and, and seeks to, to draw them back. And then Jesus said, if they don't listen to the church, let them be to you as a tax collector and sinner. That is, they are put outside the church so that further judgment can take place. Paul later describes that as Satan uh, uh, injuring them physically so that, so that the spirit can be saved. They're vulnerable there. They're without the protection of the body of Christ. And uh, things begin to happen in their lives, a, a deterioration of their, uh, of their life physically and emotionally and spiritually until they come to their senses and they're drawn back into the body. The whole thing is redemptive. You have no right to sit in judgment in a harsh and self-righteous way on anyone else because at one time we may be those that reach out. At another time we may be those that, that the church reaches out to. See, this is the way we help one another. This is the way we correct one another. It's a rescue operation. Someone steps out of, uh, out of alignment with the Lord Jesus. We go, get them. We don't let them get away. See, we, we reach out to them. Uh, I was talking to Reed, Reed Walters this morning about duck hunting, and he reminded me of a story uh, he, he told about chasing a duck across a swamp this last week, a uh, wounded duck, and he had to run after it all the way across the field. And it reminded me of something that happened when I was a kid. My uh, father took me duck hunting in, uh, in southern Louisiana in the bayous down there, the swamps. And uh, he didn't know that area, so he... he, uh, uh, he secured the services of a young black fellow who was a guide there and his little boy who must have been oh seven or eight years of age and uh, my father shot a duck and the thing went down and started flapping its way across the swamp and the little boy had on waders uh, hippers uh, uh, yeah waders and he, he jumped out and he started chasing after the after the duck and uh, after about 10 or 15 steps he disappeared he just completely went out of sight and uh, all of us jumped out of the out of the boat, but his father beat us by about three or four strides. Jumped right into the hole, grabbed the little boy by the scruff of the, of the neck, pulled him up, and began to shake him just like you'd shake a wet dog. And he said, "Foolish boy, haven't I told you? Get back in that boat." He was really angry, and he put the boy back in the boat. What had happened is he stepped into an alligator hole. The alligators uh, dig holes down in the swamp lay their eggs down there, and this little boy just stepped right off into about a six-foot hole, and with these waders, of course, he couldn't swim. Well, throughout the rest of the trip, the father kept touching the boy, and he kept hugging him, and he kept looking at him, and uh, it was very obvious, the, the love between father and son. Now, if I hadn't seen that, I would think that his actions were very harsh indeed, you know, yelling at the little boy, and of course, I know now, since I'm a father, where that came from. He was frightened. <laughs> he was scared out of his wits. But you see, love made him rescue the boy. He, he, he did what he had to do. Though it appeared to be harsh, he did what he had to do out of love. Now, that's what Jesus is talking about. And that's what Paul is talking about. That's what he encouraged the church in Corinth to do. Go rescue that brother, no matter what he's done, no matter how far out he is. Go get him and bring him back. Because that's the activity of love. Now, the world doesn't understand that. And a lot of people today in the church don't understand that. 
And there are a lot of churches today that feel very edgy and uneasy about taking that action, even though it's one that's, that's commanded by both our Lord and, and by his apostles because of the legal uh, implications of that action and because of misunderstanding on the part of the community. And it's been our experience here at Cole Church. Whenever we've had to take that action, people leave the church. They don't understand. They feel that we're being judgmental and harsh, and they, they, it just is not clear to them what we're trying to do. As some of you know, and uh, because you, you've seen it in 60 Minutes and Time Magazine and other places, a, a young woman in Oklahoma sued a church in Collingsville, uh, Oklahoma, the Collingsville Church of Christ, because they had disciplined her for, for adultery. And uh, she sued them for invasion of privacy. Uh, her argument to the uh, jury was uh, that what I do is between me and God. The church has no business telling me what to do. Her attorney agreed... His comment, his summary statement to the jury was, she's a woman, he's a man, the man with whom she had, she committed adultery, and this is America, he said. And apparently the jury agreed. They awarded her a $390,000 judgment against that church, and it still stands today, still in litigation, and no one knows what the final outcome will be. They awarded her $205,000 in actual damages and $185,000 in punitive damages. And many people in the jury wanted more because they felt that the church had no right to make any statement about the activity of one of its members. Now, we need to understand the seriousness of that sort of thing. The courts are now saying that churches have no right, or at least this one court is saying that churches have no right to make any sort of moral judgment about the activity of people within that body. See, that's a victory for the forces of, of secularization in our, in our country today. That's happening. And so to take this kind of action is a serious thing. But the issue is obedience to an apostle. Are we going to obey an apostle or not? Does the Lord know what's best or not? And again, you see, the purpose of church discipline is not simply to get rid of people that are troublemakers. That's not the point. It's redemptive. It's designed, it's designed to, to bring help and healing and to give help to people that are, that are struggling with sin in their life. Now, this is Paul's concern. And he writes to the church in Corinth this word of thanksgiving that they did indeed take the action that he had commanded. He describes it as a godly sorrow that leads to repentance. Let me read on. Uh, verse 9, Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, that's the painful letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I'm happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so we're not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. There's no hangover guilt, no remorse, no regret for this kind of action. But worldly sorrow or ungodly hurt, you see, he's contrasting what he calls a godly hurt and an ungodly hurt. An ungodly hurt brings death. Godly sorrow or godly pain brings about repentance, life, no regret. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see right done. 
At every point you have proved yourself to be innocent in this matter. So even though I wrote to you, it was not on account of the one who did the wrong primarily or of the injured party, but rather that before God you could see for yourselves how devoted to us apostles you are. By all this, we are greatly encouraged. Now, Paul is talking about uh, the repentance of a church, but we can apply this to repentance on the part of individuals. This was a church that condoned the activities of one of their members. They had refused to do nothing about it. Paul writes to them to take action. They were unwilling to do so. They later repented, and it's this that, that Paul commends them for. It was this later repentance that worked its way out into a change of behavior. It began with a loving confrontation, and that's always where it begins. Jesus said, if you see your brother sinning, you go to your brother. You don't gossip about him. You don't take it to your growth group to pray about. You don't expose the person to open shame. Love covers sin, the scripture says. We don't want to embarrass people or shame them unnecessarily. So if if you have a friend or a a believing neighbor, someone close to you, and, and and they persist in sin. Now, we're not talking about those missteps that all of us take, those momentary failures when we don't uh, respond in obedience to the truth, but a deliberate misstep that is uh, persisted in. We, We need to go to that person and with real love and tenderness confront them with their behavior. It has to be done lovingly. Uh, It doesn't always work out the way we think. Sometimes they get angry. Sometimes they cry. Sometimes they're hurt. But Proverbs says, afterwards you gain more favor. It may take some time. The initial reaction may not be precisely what we expect. Nevertheless, if we love that person, we will confront them. It is not loving to withdraw truth or withhold truth from people. Love demands that we confront people with their sin. Now, uh, when we're confronted with our sin, we have, we have two choices to make. Actually, I think probably all of us make, uh, we do the same thing initially. We get hurt. Uh, We get angry. We begin to justify ourselves. We say, well, uh, you see, the problem is my husband. It's, uh, he's the problem. He's the reason I act the way I do. Or the problem is I am hot-blooded, and uh, that's why I'm so uh, passionate. Uh, Or uh, we say the problem is that I'm an artist, an artiste, and I have a very sensitive soul. And uh, we just have uh, uncanny ways of, of, of justifying our, our sinful behavior. That's almost always our initial reaction. I don't think God cares about our initial reaction. He knows we're human. In fact, Jesus told a story about two boys that were told to go work in the fields. Remember? One of them said, I'll go. And he never went. And the other one... The other one said, oh, I'm not going, but he went. And Jesus commended the one whose initial reaction was to say no to God. I don't know about you, but whenever I'm confronted with sin in my life, my immediate reaction is defensive, to be self-justifying, to not want to face into the sin. I don't think God is concerned about that. The real question is, what's the next step that we take? We have a choice To either give way to godly hurt or ungodly hurt. And we all know what ungodly hurt is. It is giving way to self-pity, basically. Uh, The reason we get angry is because we're hurt. We want to protect ourselves. So we get mad. 
And then the more we think about it, the more sorry we feel for ourselves. And we go back to our rooms, and we begin to think about how much injustice we have suffered, and how much we have done for that person, and how little they understand us. And we just feel sorrier and sorrier and sorrier for ourselves. And you know what happens? You get depressed. You always get depressed. Self-pity will always make you depressed. And so will anger, if you give way to anger. Uh, you know, we can, t- to the end of our days, we can go about with a, an angry spirit, resentful towards someone who has tried to, to correct us. Well, that doesn't hurt the person. It only hurts us. It makes us depressed. That's why Paul says it produces death. Did you get that word? It produces death. Depression, a sense of alienation, a lack of self-worth. Paul's talking to Christians here. He's not talking about spiritual death. He's talking about the death-like state that we enter into when we will not face into our sin, when we try to justify it on any basis, whatever. The result, he says, is death. But on the other hand, there is a godly hurt. Oh, sure, it hurts. No one likes to be corrected. No one likes to be told that they've been wrong. And often we've lived our life on the wrong basis for a long time. I don't like to hear that. But uh, when we hear it, though it hurts, we need to respond. And Paul says, a godly sorrow, a godly hurt results in a change of behavior. That's why he piles up uh, words, as he does here, to describe their, uh, their reaction. Verse 11, see what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness, an earnestness to do what's right. What eagerness to clear yourselves. He's not talking about being defensive and explaining why we did what we did. The the word implies the idea of, of, of a defense system, erecting defenses against failure in the future. What indignation, what what uh, wrath directed toward yourself and your sin? What anger at your sin, as David uh, in, in, in Psalm 73 puts it? He said, I, when, I, when I justified my sin, I was just like a beast. He said, I was like a wild animal. I was destroying everything. And we ought to be highly indignant at ourselves because of, of our sin. What alarm, what fear that we'll fall into the same sin in, in the future. What longing for obedience. What concern or zeal to set things right. What readiness to see righteousness done. I, we could go over each word individually, but I think Paul's point is, is simply to pack together a lot of words to get across the idea that you really take this thing seriously and you do something about it. You don't justify it. You, as, as Eustace did, you permit... Aslan to rip away the scales and and you deal with the sin and you put it away by his grace and by his strength you put it to death and you set it aside and Paul says the results are always salutary they're always so good see how he puts it godly sorrow brings repentance a change of mind he's not talking about feelings He's not talking about feeling remorseful because we don't always feel bad uh, uh, about our our sin. He's rather talking about a change of mind, a change of behavior. Uh, he, He says that that godly hurt results in repentance or a change of mind that leads to salvation, that is health and healing and leaves no regret. Uh, the problem with, with unjudged sin is that we always feel guilty. There's false guilt and there's true guilt. Uh, 
False guilt needs to be dealt with on one basis. We need to know what's right and what's wrong on the basis of God's standards and deal with false guilt on, the, on that basis. True guilt, real guilt, comes when we violate one of God's standards and we know it. We ought to feel guilty. But you see, what we, what we believe is that if, if, we, if we just forget the sin, just push it back in our memory, then sooner or later the guilt will go away. And it does, but it always goes underground. And it begins to pop up in other places in our, in our psyche, in depression and, uh, uh, and feelings of, of, uh, of, of worthlessness and inadequacy. Now, but Paul says if we really deal with our sin, then there is no regret. There is no guilt. Health, healing, and a freedom from guilt. And a third uh, uh, result uh, down in verse uh, uh, 13b. In addition to our encouragement, we were especially, especially delighted to see how happy Titus was because his spirit has been refreshed by all of you. I had boasted to him about you, and you have not embarrassed me, but just as everything we said to you was true, so our boasting about you to Titus has proved to be true as well. And his affection for you is all the greater when he remembers that you were all obedient, receiving him with fear and trembling. I'm glad I can have complete confidence in you. The third result is that Christians who see their friends turn away from sin are refreshed, and their affection and regard for that person is enhanced. I've experienced that over and over again, and I'm sure you have as well. I, just a couple of weeks ago, I sat across the table from a young man, and I had to speak to him about some areas of his life that needed correcting. Uh, that happened to be one time when I was the corrector. There have been times when young men sat across the table and corrected me, and it needs to work that way. But on this occasion, I, I had to point out some things in his life. And uh, his first reaction was anger. His eyes flashed. And then they flooded with tears, and, and big tears began to run down his, uh, his cheeks. And he looked down at his hands, and then he looked up at me, and he said, You know, he said, You're right. You're absolutely right. So I knew that was wrong, and I knew I needed to correct it, and I'm grateful that, that you've, you've pointed it out to me. You're absolutely right. And... Uh, my respect for him and my regard for him was increased tenfold. And my affection for him. I, if we hadn't been in a crowded restaurant, I would have just thrown my arms around him. That's the reaction. That you, you never lose face with others when you face into sin. You know, I think about the disaster that befell our, our president, President Nixon, and often think that if he had simply faced into his wrongdoing, and admitted it. He would not have lost face with the American public. I don't know what would have happened to him. Politically, we, we would never know, but he would not have lost face. Our regard for him would have been increased. We lose face when we try to cover up sin and try to justify it and defend it. When we're honest and open, the affection and the regard for the body of the, on the part of the body is always increased, you see. There's a family here among us that for for years lived with an area of disobedience and finally they they came to the realization that they had to do something about it and they and they acted at great cost to themselves and it will cost them probably throughout the rest of their life but every time i see them i just want to hug them and i you know, my regard and respect for them it, it has increased so much simply because they're obedient 
Now that's what Paul is talking about. This is an action that we must take for one another. Though it hurts, ultimately it heals. Now I must announce something. It's very difficult. It's very hard. But I must tell you, as a church, that we need to reach out in love along the lines that we've been talking about. Now let me explain what has happened. Many of you know they have been identified with this body for about the past year since they moved to Boise. They have been involved in a growth group and uh, have been uh, identified in other ways with our, with our body. They are not members. Uh, as you know, we don't make much of membership here. Membership is for your sake rather than ours. There are some people who want to identify closely with this body, and so we have membership available for you. But our feeling is that anyone who is a member of the body of Christ is a member here, whether they declare formal membership or not. So in that sense, since they're members of Christ's body and members of this local church, we, we look upon them in that, in that way. They're not just casual attenders. Uh, they, they, they are a part of this body. has sued for divorce. The divorce will be final in January. Her basis for doing so is not scriptural. We believe on the basis of Matthew 19, Matthew 5, and other passages that there is only one, there's only one scriptural basis for divorce, uh, the, for a Christian to initiate a divorce, and that's on grounds of adultery. Now, this is not the case. It has not been adulterous. It is simply unwilling to uh, live any longer, with and she has filed for divorce. She's been appealed to on a number of occasions. We've gone through the procedure in Matthew 18, 1, and then 2, and then others have appealed to her. Her growth group has appealed to her. As I have been able to observe the uh, circumstances, though I've not been that closely involved, it's been done lovingly and graciously and with great concern. We realize that fault in a marriage is never solely the responsibility of one person. I've been married too long to to believe that. the, the fault, we believe, is, is shared. We, we've not asked an impossible situation. We've asked her to consider a temporary separation while they work out their problems and while they receive counsel. And we have been willing to offer counsel. Any number of people have. Uh, is willing to undergo a, 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 a time of counseling. Is not. She has repeatedly, persistently resisted the efforts of the elders and others uh, uh, to effect a reconciliation with So it is with real grief that we announce that this is the case, and we ask you as a body to reach out. Many of you know her. Call her on the telephone. Uh, Write her notes. Pray for her. We don't want to harass her, but we do want to know that this body is concerned, and with her life and that of her children, and the the deep uh, damage and lasting damage that can be done through this action. We don't, any of us feel that we have it together and therefore can sit in, in, in judgment. That's not the point. It is simply that she's living, has chosen a course that is in opposition to Scripture, one which we feel on the basis of an apostolic command and the authority of our Lord, which we must resist in any way that we possibly can. Responsible to the end for her own choices. If she chooses to go on, then uh, that's her choice. But we don't want that. We want her to be reconciled. We're concerned about the skyrocketing divorce rate in our state and across the United States. We want to do something to keep families together. We feel that as Christians, we have the resources 
to make our marriage uh, marriages last and make them meaningful and change the direction of, of society as a result of our actions as Christians, to have light in our home as the Israelites did in the land of, of Egypt. I, I, I want to read just one portion of the letter that we wrote so that you'll understand the spirit in, in, in which this is sent. We're well aware some of our own sin and failure. We do not act out of a sense of personal accomplishment. Furthermore, we know that a failure in marriage is never solely the fault of one member. Our counsel from the beginning has been for as well to seek counsel. We're also aware of the pain in your marriage, but we believe that more is at stake than mere personal well-being. There are the greater issues of obedience to our Lord and his shaping of us for his, for his purposes. Pain, as you know, is part of that process. To avoid the pain of this marriage is to avoid God's loving discipline that yields the fruit of righteousness for those who are exercised by it. It is our hope that those who know you in this church will now lovingly appeal to you to turn from an action that we believe can only result in further heartache and loss. This is not the fourth and final step which our Lord uh, tells us to take. This is the third, simply an announcement to the church of need and our need to reach out to her. I'm over time, but will you just give me about two more minutes uh, in the what we call the upper room discourse or the story of, of the Last Supper in John 13. Our Lord came into the room filled with, with men, with his disciples, and he, he began to wash their feet. Culturally, that was the responsibility of a slave. No one likes to wash feet. But our Lord stripped himself of his garments, which I think is something of, a, of an allegory as well as a historic uh, event. He took off his robe just as he took off his robe of glory. And he girded himself with a towel. He humbled himself as a man. And uh, he began to, to crawl around on the floor on his hands and knees and wash the feet of the apostles. Culturally, they, they bathed uh, daily in the Roman uh, baths. But as they moved through, uh, through town and in the dust, their feet would be defiled by the dust they picked up uh, from uh, just normal, uh, normal life in in, in, in the city and uh, when they came to a, a meeting of this, of this manner uh, someone had to wash their feet of defilement and this is what our Lord did he came to Peter you know the story Peter said you're not going to wash my feet Jesus said if I don't wash your feet you don't have any part with me Peter said okay wash me all over Jesus said you don't need to be washed all over you've been cleansed I only need to wash your feet then he said to the disciples do you understand what I'm doing and my reaction at reading that statement or that question is simply to say, well, sure, you wash their feet. What's the significance? Why do you ask that question? Well, he wanted us to see that there is a deeper significance than mere foot washing. He says, if I did this to you, you ought to do this to one another. It's a command. Is he saying then that we ought to add foot washing to the ordinances of the church alongside the Lord's table and baptism? Possibly. There's certainly nothing wrong with foot washing as an ordinance. But our Lord made it very clear by his statement to Peter that there's far more implied by what he said than mere foot washing. He said, you've been washed all over. You only need to wash your feet. In other words, we've taken the bath of salvation, those of us that have uh, acknowledged Jesus Christ as Lord. We don't need to be bathed again to be re-regenerated. She, at this point, considers herself to be a believer. But she, like all of us, uh, as she walks through the world, picks up the defilement of the world, and we need to wash her feet. 
lovingly, gently. See, that's what Jesus is talking about. And he makes it very clear it's not an option. He says, if I, your Lord and Master, your Lord and Teacher, did this to you, you must do it to one another. It is not an option for us. And as the world continues to encroach on the church and we find our, ourselves being defiled by the thinking and the attitudes of the world, we must obey our Lord's teaching. We must wash one another's feet. You need to wash my feet. I need to wash your feet. You need to wash one another's feet. That's the only way we can keep ourselves clean and pure. We'll fail a great deal, but we can help one another in our progress toward God. That's all we're asking you to do. Help our own to God.